0: This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station.
1: All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Roger Kincaid uh, enjoying some vacation time. 974 8255 is a number, continuing a conversation about this uh, landmark vote yesterday in Great Britain, a vote to leave the European Union. We'll get some more analysis later in the hours to what it means for the global economy, what it might mean for Canada. Uh, certainly some global uncertainty in the short term, and we see that reflected uh, on the markets today plummeting right across the board, uh, reacting to the, to the shock and the impact of this decision. Now, just before we get to our next guest, a couple more clips I, I just wanted to play here. Uh, and this speaks to the continuing fallout from this, not just what's going to happen now in the coming months as Great Britain negotiates its way out of the EU, But what's going to happen in Scotland in particular? This is Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, speaking earlier today.
0: Let me address the issue of a second independence referendum. The manifesto that the SNP was elected on last month said this. The Scottish Parliament should have the right to hold another referendum if there is a significant and material change in the circumstances that prevailed in 2014 such as Scotland being taken out of the EU against our will. Scotland does now face that prospect. It is a significant and material change in circumstances, and it is therefore a statement of the obvious that the option of a second referendum must be on the table, and it is on the table. Clearly though, there are many discussions to be had before final decisions can be taken. It would not be right to rush to judgment ahead of discussions on how Scotland's result will be responded to by the EU. However, when the Article 50 process is triggered in three months' time, the UK will be on a two-year path to the EU exit door. If Parliament judges that a second referendum is the best or only way to protect our place in Europe, it must have the option to hold one within that timescale.
1: Okay, so... Uh, A lot of questions about where the UK goes from here, where Europe goes from here, and what it's going to mean. But joining us uh, for some thoughts on what happened yesterday and why it happened, Andrew Apostolo joining us, uh, Labour Party activist, British historian, has also managed human rights campaigns in the Middle East. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me back. Well, it's great Um, to talk to you. What a a, a royal mess, if I may say so. And, And we now, as you know, Britain is very proud of the fact that we don't have a constitution. A written one, that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have an informal constitution we've managed just fine. Now we're finding out that actually it's a little bit inconvenient because we're in completely uncharted territory. We've basically taken a a leap off a cliff, and that's why the markets respond in the way they are. And the Scottish nationalists are a very slippery bunch, in my view, uh, are actually secretly, well, not so secretly, I think, rather thrilled with this result. They didn't campaign very vigorously to stay in the EU. Um, They got a majority result in Scotland, which is what they wanted. Um, and a majority in the UK to leave. So now they can turn around and reopen the whole issue of independence. And as I'm sure you know, Nicola Sturgeon actually lost her majority in the Scottish Parliament a few months ago uh, in the the Scottish elections, and now suddenly her political fortunes have been revived. We're in a very peculiar situation. We could end up in a, a situation where we have the people of Scotland still in the EU in some way, so they're still able to have freedom of movement, which I think is what counts for them, um, whereas the people of England would not have freedom of movement at the EU. Um, and so we'd be in a very, very peculiar situation. So um, it's, a, it's a strange day, and I think you may have seen, Rob, uh, you look online, you'll see people who being interviewed who voted for leave now saying, oh, I wish I hadn't done it. It's a bit late for that.
1: Uh, yeah, indeed indeed it is. So what was this vote about then? What, what's, what is
2: the great failing well, of the EU? A, that, that's a great question. So there was a lot of talk on the BBC last night about people saying, Well, it was about kicking the establishment in the pants, it was about immigration, it was about jobs, it was about my community, it was about my mortgage. No, it was about the EU, and I think people did deliberately make a vote on the EU. Of course, a good political campaign, and the Leave campaign, and a very effective one, a very Donald Trump one in many ways, basically gets people to focus their attention on an issue, and the Remain campaign failed. So a lot of people who are very unhappy about immigration It doesn't have to actually be immigration from the EU. And some of the people they are unhappy about aren't even immigrants. Nonetheless, they were told if you vote leave, we'll solve this problem. That's very effective campaigning. So immigration was a big issue. The economy, oddly enough, was not a big issue. You'd think it was. And if you look actually on the Financial Times today, they have a fascinating graph showing that the parts of the UK that export the most of their GDP and do the most trade with the European Union are the bits that voted to leave. Um, Also the parts of the UK that get the most money from the European Union voted to leave and today Cornwall, which voted to leave, has had the chutzpah to turn around to the UK government and say, you know that £60 million in EU money we're going to lose? Do you mind making it up? And I think the answer from Londoners like myself is going to be no. Uh, absolutely not. And again, that's another thing that's happening, which is London voted massively to stay. Um, London is the powerhouse of the UK economy, it's around a quarter of the UK GDP, and London's turning around now and saying, well, why are we subsidising you? So, you know, it was about the EU, don't anybody tell you it wasn't, but of course the great thing, you know, political campaigns are all about getting people to vote for you, and you do that in any way you can, and I mean, you just had an election recently in Canada. Um, you know, some people voted for your prime minister because they think he's cool and hunky. Some people didn't because they don't like him being cool and hunky. But you know what? It doesn't matter. If they vote, that's what counts.
1: All right. In terms of uh, the fallout, now already we've seen uh, David Cameron announce his, his resignation or his pending resignation. Uh, we hear there's, there's also uh, going to be a leadership challenge, a uh, push for non-confidence in Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, who will the consequences uh, of this be and, and who are the leaders now likely to emerge?
2: Well, let me just say that, first of all, Cameron has yet again broken a promise. He said that he wouldn't resign after this referendum, he has. He also said he would straight away invoke Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to take us out of the EU. He hasn't, and what he's done instead is he's thrown that live hand grenade to his successor, because he knows the negotiations will be a, probably a fiasco. The main contenders are uh, an interesting bunch. Um, Again, you'll hear a lot of talk about how this is an insurgent campaign, an anti-establishment campaign. Uh, One of the main contenders is a guy called Boris Johnson, who um, went to a public school and a top university, as I did. Um, And then another one, of course, is Michael Gove. Um, Both of them are uh, rivals for Cameron. They're the two lead contenders. There are also dark horse contenders, so-called, like Theresa May, who is the home secretary, who is uh, the only woman in the race, but um, she has quite a solid base and she's more of a centrist. Um, And then, of course, you do have the possibility that George Osborne, the chancellor, who was meant to be Cameron, etc., will try and run. But I think it's unlikely. I think he's also going to have to resign. Um, The tone of the campaign was really something quite extraordinary. And to see conservatives going at each other um, with sort of sharp knives in the way that they did rhetorically w- was really extraordinary. Um, and I think the mistake that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader, made was he saw this internal civil war happening in the Conservative Party and thought, well, this is just fabulous. Why don't I just sit back and let this happen? Um, and of course, the result of him sitting back was he didn't mobilize the Labour base. He didn't make the argument to Labour voters to so why they should turn out for Remain. And as a result, Remain lost the referendum. And by the way, It was a decisive result. Again, one of the things you'll you'll hear if you listen to the BBC is, oh, it was divisive, oh, it was close. No, no, in a referendum, you just need one vote to win, and they won by over a million votes. It was a very convincing victory, in my view.
1: Well, it was, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it did seem close for a while. The polls had indicated this would be close. But uh, w- what's interesting, though, uh, the, it is decisive. The results will stand. And David Cameron made that clear this morning. Uh, but Nigel Farage and, and the Leave campaign, they, they'd they been making noise in the lead-up to this campaign that if they didn't like the results yesterday, they, they'd push for another referendum.
2: Well, that, that was actually, I think, one of the most worrying things about this. I mean, one of the basic elements of democracy is that you have to be a good loser. And I'm a Labour Party activist. I know lots about being a loser, <laughs> okay? So you, you just learn to accept that you lost the election. Now, and that's the biggest difference between a real democracy and a non-democracy. In a real democracy, you can lose an election, they don't put you in prison the next day, and you just accept the result and get on with your life. And they accept the result and they don't come after you. Um, I think the fact that before this referendum, the Leave campaign was threatening if they didn't win, they'd force another referendum. And then Farage turned around and said, well, there's two million extra voter registrations. The government may have stolen this. This is crazy conspiracy theory politics. Interestingly, that's exactly what the Scottish Nationalists said as well a couple of years ago. They said to us before the Scottish referendum in 2014, um, this is a once-in-a-generation vote, now they're turning around and saying, oh, we want another vote within two years, uh, which violates the whole notion of another vote. The other problem we've got with that, of course, is if Parliament in London doesn't give them permission to hold that referendum, they'll hold it illegally, like Catalonia, or they'll declare UDI. So that, again, um, there's, there's a real problem there with with this kind of undemocratic politics. And we see it, by the way, not too far away from you, to the south of you with Donald Trump, when he said famously that if he didn't get the nomination, there would be riots. You, you, know, you don't threaten that. What you say saying is, okay, I didn't run a great campaign. I lost or I won, and you accept the result. But to actually either threaten violence or threaten extra votes to do what you in Canada have given us this wonderful word, a never-end-of approach, yes. that's profoundly anti-democratic. And I think that's the real worry at the heart of all this, If we have this anti-democratic movement in democracies, we have it now in the U.K., we have it openly in France with Marine Le Pen, you have the thuggery of Donald Trump. Um, It's very worrying.
1: Well, and and certainly uh, I'm sure Vladimir Putin is is smiling about this result today as well, isn't he?
2: Oh, he's absolutely thrilled. You know, he was very pro-Scottish independence. He hates the European Union. Uh, It's interesting, during the campaign, Boris Johnson actually repeated Putin's propaganda that the EU was responsible for the crisis in Ukraine. Um, and, I, and as I remember thinking at the time when he said that, I thought, well, hang on a minute, the EU is so hopeless, they can't organize a single market, but they're so devious they can organize a war in Ukraine. These are very remarkable people. Um, so, yeah, Putin is very happy, and that should make us worried. Um, Putin and Marine Le Pen were thrilled. Get builders, The racist in Holland is thrilled. You know, there's a reason why we have the European Union. I, mean, I, I don't need to remind you in Canada that we're about to come up to the uh, 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. Um, you know, people were very upset when David Cameron reminded them of this, but he was right. The European Union comes out of a catastrophe of 20th century European politics. It began with things like the coal and steel community when the French and Germans pulled the industries that in those days were the industries of war. I mean, coal and steel look terribly old-fashioned these days. But They were important then and the idea was we'll create some kind of joint body, joint trade, political union so that we're at each other's throats and it turns out we're not doing very well with that and it turns out a lot of people really want to be at each other's throats. I mean we now have a war in eastern Ukraine. Russia has just changed borders in Europe by annexing Crimea and the UK instead of standing with its European allies Um, And being a leader, because a lot of the people in Europe and a lot of the countries in Europe look to the UK because they see the rule of law and democracy as something that we have had continually uh, in the modern era. And they wonder what on earth has happened. So it's a very bad day. And I think also the the, the other problem is this, you know, the Germans don't want to be too dominant. Merkel is very aware of that. But we've just gone and given her even more dominance over the EU, which has been making more tension within the remaining 27. So, yes, Putin is a very happy man today. And I, I think if there's one thing you should try and do every day, it's not put a smile on his face.
1: Yeah, that's probably good advice. Uh, so then, given the, the imperfections of the EU, even the failings of the EU, I- is it still worth saving?
2: Well, the Europeans are going to have to try and save it because, frankly, without the EU, who knows what Europe will be like? The Europeans, I think, know you can't trust themselves. Um, and that's the reason for the structure. They're going to try... The biggest problem they've got is actually not the EU, and this is, again, one of the things in the campaign that was so odd, the way people spoke past each other. Um, The biggest problem in the EU is actually the Eurozone, which, fortunately, Britain is not a member of, and, you know, bless Gordon Brown. He wasn't a great prime minister, but he was a good chancellor and he kept us out of the euro. Um, The euro is throttling the economies of southern Europe and France, um, but it's good for the German economy. So... The real question now is, you know, are they going to do something about the euro? Uh, because otherwise you've got a third Greek bailout on the way. Um, you have a possible need for a bailout uh, in Italy. And part of the problem we've got is, given the financial market turmoil that we in Britain, I'm so sorry to say this to all of you, um, have created quite... Um, this could lead to an earlier than anticipated global recession. You know, the, the world economy goes through cycles. People were saying we're due for a recession in the next few years. We, I may have brought it on a little on the early side. I'm I'm terribly sorry. And I know you in Canada have suffered from the drop in oil prices, and we may have just made that a little bit worse. My apologies. Um, And so, you know, the EU is going to be an even deeper crisis without the UK. Um, Plus, I think the other thing is this. You know, what we're saying to the Europeans, this this was the contradiction at the heart of the Leave campaign, and it's a contradiction at the heart of all nationalism, because Leave is really English nationalism. Um, It was a bit like going home to your wife and saying, I hate you. Being married is like being shackled to a corpse, which is a phrase Boris Johnson <laughs> right. used. Um, you've destroyed my life. I've got no freedom with you. I can't wait to get out of this horrible marriage. Oh, and darling, can we have a slow civilized divorce? I wouldn't try that at home if I were you or any of your listeners. Yeah. Um, but that's basically what we're saying now. And I think the Europeans are going to turn around and say, no, get out. Just pack your stuff. Leave. don't worry, I'll feed the dog, I'll look after the kids, just get out. Um, and so we're going to have a rush, uh, you know, already Boris Johnson and the others saying we'll take our sweet time over this. Europeans won't allow that. They'll rush to push us out the door. That means more volatility, weaker growth, um, that, very bad for you in Canada, of course, lower oil prices lower commodity prices, et cetera.
1: Indeed. Well, just one last question for you, Andrew. Um, wh- what does this tell us about the rise of, of nationalism in UK politics, or, or even the rise of the, the far right in British politics?
2: Well, it's a very interesting question. I think in terms of the far right, it shows how far right, and in this case it was UKIP, is able to hijack mainstream politics. Um, and, you know, for all the talk about how Nigel Farage is not formally part of the Leave campaign He was an informal leader and everybody knew it and they made very little effort to distance themselves from him. They were happy to let him say outrageous things and do outrageous things, take the benefit of the votes and then say, I didn't quite like that. Um, In terms of nationalism, I think it just shows English nationalism is there. Um, The English have been very quiet for a very long time. I think one of the reasons for the rise of English nationalism is actually Scottish nationalism. I mean, you know, people put up with a barrage of insults from the Scottish Nationalists, telling us we destroyed their lives, we were destroying Scotland, we were bu- all this stuff, when actually we, we subsidized them and in fact the fiscal settlement that came out of the failed attempt at independence of Scotland was to the detriment of England and the detriment of London. And So people have reacted. It's also I think a reaction by uh, people who just don't like the fact that Britain has changed and Um, As I said, a lot of the immigrants who people are focusing their anger on are actually not immigrants. They're second or third generation Britons from the Commonwealth. Um, But, you know, they are very hostile. And I think one of the most interesting things I found in this campaign was how members of my family, and were originally immigrants to the UK from Cyprus, um, this brought out memories of what had happened to them in the past. My my mother's family has been there since the 1930s. It's been a really long time. Mm -hmm. And... um, He remembered how, in in the forties, and and her father had been in the army in the war. People would walk up to her and her family on the street. Um, They would hear them speaking Greek, and they would say, "Why don't you go back to your country?" Um, And it brought back those memories. So it's interesting. London, which has a very large ethnic minority population, voted massively to remain um, because I think there's a really strong feeling that, you know, after they've gone after the Polish plumbers, it'll be the Jamaicans and uh, the Cypriots and the Asians next. So it, it's, it's very unpleasant and, you know, mainstream politicians need to have an answer. We need to be able to take on these issues. I don't believe actually that that means that the Labour Party, for example, has to advocate for anti-immigrant racist policies. I think that's a really stupid, cheap trick. Um, but we've got to be able to address this issue and say to people, We understand your concern. We will do something about the impact on your community of immigration. And in some cases, we may need to say to our voters, sorry, that's just the way it is. We have immigration in this country. I mean, you have that in Canada. You have immigration in Canada. You'll always have people who are hostile, but it's the job of politicians to make those explanations. And I'm sorry to say that if we don't do that, if we can't do that, if we can't fight back, if we can't make those arguments, you will have politics dominated by people like Nigel Farage, Marine Le Pen, or Donald Trump.
1: We'll leave it there, Andrew. Fantastic insight. Thank you so much for joining us here. Really appreciate this.
2: Lovely to speak to you. Best, everybody. Take care. Yeah. All right.
1: Take care. Thanks. Andrew Apostolou, a British historian, Labour Party activist as well. Uh, We've got to take a break here. We're going to come back. Uh, a lot more still to come uh, on the Brexit vote and the fallout. It's Kincaid and Breaking Ridge on News Talk 770. Welcome to this hour of the program, Rob Breckenridge. With you, happy lunch, as Roger would say, but Roger's not here, so we don't we don't say such things. Nine seven four eight two five five is our telephone number. You can text us seven seventy seven seventy. Yeah, Roger will be back. Um, well, he's not here next week either. So whenever after that is uh, later in this hour, we're going to hear from Tyler King. He's a columnist with Fort McMurray today. A very controversial move this week by Wood Buffalo Council, the mayor and, and councillors, uh, approving themselves a pay raise for some councillors. Uh, and even for the mayor, it's a pretty significant pay raise. Uh, and this is all uh, because of, I guess, all the additional work some of them are going to be doing, the rebuilding of Fort McMurray. But i tell you, a lot of people are going to be doing a lot to rebuild Fort McMurray. A lot of people have already done a lot for that community and not necessarily getting a whole lot of money for it. And so this decision has really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, including uh, Tyler, who had a pretty scathing piece uh, for Fort McMurray today. He'll join us after 1230. Uh, We're uh, watching for word out of Lethbridge. Uh, Judge Will pass down sentence today on David and Colette Stefan, who, of course, were convicted of failing to provide the necessaries of life. Someone texted earlier and said, Why are we saying necessaries, not necessities? Um, look, I don't know. That's how, it's, how it is in the criminal code. That's what the charge is called failing to provide the necessaries of life concerning the death of their 19 year old, or rather 19 month old son Ezekiel, who died uh, from bacterial meningitis in 2012. And uh, of course, that that conviction was premised on the evidence presented in court, which indicated that these parents did not get the medical attention that Ezekiel needed. Well, not until it was too late anyway, and instead relied on natural and naturopathic and homeopathic remedies. So sentencing arguments were heard yesterday, and it did get pretty emotional at times. Uh, Some disagreements uh, between the, the crown of the defense as to what is relevant in terms of these these arguments and what the sentence ought to be. What was admitted as evidence, by the way, and we talked about it earlier in the week, the interview the parents gave, or I guess David gave, at an anti-vaccine movie being screened in Calgary earlier this week, and how it really showed a lack of remorse. And to me, that's what stands out here. Just there there's no accountability here. There's a real lack of remorse. Although certainly Colette, Stefan, was was very emotional on the stand yesterday. Uh, Reed Feist with Global National was there taking it all in yesterday and joins us on the line here today. Reed, thanks for joining us.
3: Yeah, good afternoon, Rob. Uh,
1: so when are we expecting to, to hear from the judge?
3: Well, at 2 p.m., we expect that the sentence will come down. The justice will deliver it. Uh, like you say, uh, there was day one of this hearing yesterday, and it was a marathon day. It went for over 12 hours. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of debating uh, as you touched on and what was admissible from the defense side the defense wanted to submit letters that uh, random people had just either emailed or facebooked in and, and the judge said that that really wasn't relevant uh that you know the only thing he would accept would be letters from people that actually knew the couple or uh you know or anything that they had said uh, since their conviction. And as you said, uh, they did enter uh, that video of uh, that interview in, uh, despite uh, defense's arguments that said it, it shouldn't have been put into evidence. Uh, the judge did touch on something you just touched on as well, that remorse side. Yeah. And um, while he's not certain he feels the sentence the Crown wants, which would be three to four and a half years in jail, the maximum is five. The defense wants nothing, but uh, the justice said that he still doesn't feel that this couple has, has shown remorse, um, despite what Colette said yesterday in terms of if she could do anything to have Ezekiel back, she would turn back the clock, but she didn't specify that would have meant taking him to the hospital sooner.
1: Right. Now, yeah, it was interesting from what I was reading that you get the sense that maybe the judge doesn't want to send them to prison that maybe he's looking for uh, a reason not to which is you know that that comment that you know, i want to see some remorse from you too but did the judge give any indication about w- where he's leading here
3: well i think uh, he's in a tough spot and i think you described it right rob um i feel like he, he doesn't think that that time to three and a four and a half years is appropriate you know, keep in mind they have three other children, and that was definitely touched on yesterday. What will be the impact on this family, these other children, if, if the parents go to jail and for how long? But uh, I think, you know, the Crown is, is definitely, uh, you know, sure on its request that he they there needs to be a deterrent um, mm-hmm. and, and, and set an example and, and that the, this couple should go to jail. But where that will all land uh is is up to him and it's not entirely clear you know is there an option that perhaps the sentence could be served on weekends is there if not uh maybe you don't serve it concurrently so one maybe you were to go to jail for a time maybe the other uh would as well um that can be decided, uh, but uh, the sentence itself, we understand, will be the same for, for both of them uh, because they were or jointly convicted.
1: Okay. Well, uh, yeah, that was something I was wondering about because it, it, it almost seems as though there, there's a case to be made for treating them separately, but they were jointly convicted. Uh, you, you see real emotion from from Colette, and I mean, you saw it again yesterday, uh with david it's it's weird, and even just watching that interview earlier in the week it just seems so robotic, so detached from it all it's it's very strange
3: yeah and and that's definitely something the Crown touched on yesterday, you know that he has definitely been the spokesperson specifically mm-hmm. with that video, but you know the Crown also said for for the most part D- David sometimes was away and and Colette was you know the children's primary caregiver, so while she may not have been his vocal. You know, uh, in some of these interviews, or uh, or along the way, that she had an equally important role, in, you know, in terms of the parenting of Ezekiel, and the responsibility, you know, that the courts have now thought that they they didn't take, um, you know, seriously, and and why they've been convicted of this of this charge.
1: Right. Yeah. Colette was the one who went to the naturopath, for example. Right. right. Yeah. For
3: sure. Yeah. And call and called them, as well. So I mean, it's uh, but. You know, on the flip side, there are lots of people here, you know, supportive of of this family still. Their family is here. There's probably 20 to 30 people in court and then just outside of it yesterday. We're expecting a bit of a rally for the family to start in the next 15 minutes. um, They've asked for people to wear white shirts and jeans. We're seeing a couple of them starting to assemble on the courthouse steps. Uh, but interestingly, yesterday, we talked to one woman. She's an orthopedic surgeon here at the hospital in Lethbridge. She showed up with some signs, and initially we didn't see what they said, but she was here to protest against them yesterday. And, you know, her view that, you know, science would have saved Ezekiel. This was a, you know, a curable um, disease mm-hmm. that, that he had, and had he seen a medical professional, in her view, sooner, he would be alive today. And... That is also the conclusion of the courts.
1: There, there was an odd moment yesterday, uh, and and certainly the the family is the couple anyway. David and Colette, have really put on this mantle of victimhood, and it was an odd moment yesterday where Colette just blurted out in the middle of all of this that that she believes the the autopsy was was forged. It was something to that effect. Is that what she said?
3: Yeah. Well, she she actually used the word falsify. Falsify. Uh, mm-hmm. She was, um, you know. Uh, Describing kind of different things throughout testimony, and then she uh, she blurted that out, but very quickly, you know, the crown objected, and and the judge even corrected her, saying, you know, this isn't something uh, a road we want to go down. Uh, you know, the conviction is there. This is evidence, uh, and it wasn't appropriate for her to, to say that. But the family still believes that they, you know, they don't believe that Ezekiel was. Uh, was uh, brain dead um, before the EMS arrived when his, when his parents finally uh, were driving him to a hospital. They, they were, he was having medical problems. They phoned EMS and uh, an ambulance arrived. Now granted that ambulance apparently didn't have the correct breathing uh, equipment uh, spec- specifically for a child and they admitted that in testimony but um, the uh, medical examiner later determined that, that Ezekiel was brain dead before the EMS and EMTs arrived, And so that's where their argument lies. But, um, you know, this, this has already been in evidence. Two doctors have agreed on the cause of death. So uh, it's pretty difficult to argue with that at this point.
1: Well, yeah. To make that argument now, I'm not sure what what that accomplishes. So, uh, yeah. So I guess the the judge's intent on why it was such a long day. He wanted to hear all the arguments yesterday, and so really all today will bring is this sentence coming down at, at two o'clock. Then,
3: yeah. And and what. Prolonged it yesterday was a lot of the finding about what was admissible the defense. Um, you know, def- definitely wanted, uh, you know, he called witnesses despite it, you know, the trial already being done, which they're allowed to do. But, you know, he it, it, it definitely reiterated a lot of what had already been put into evidence. And, and the justice uh, definitely made that clear, you know, that the court had already heard a lot of this. It was already on record. It didn't need to be heard again But, uh, you know, it was something that they um, he wanted to say with with the supporters in the courtroom, it appeared.
1: All right. Well, we'll uh, find out uh, soon enough. Uh, Reed, thanks for the update. Appreciate this. No worries. All right. Reed Feist uh, with Global National has been covering uh, this case. It was there yesterday, a long day of of, uh, arguments, and uh, we'll be uh, reporting today as well. Sentence comes down at two o'clock this afternoon, we are told. Uh, but as uh, Reed said, supporters of uh, the the Stephans are already gathering outside the courtroom in, in Lethbridge. And uh, I'm sure it'll be quite a reaction, uh, regardless of what the sentence is. They're, they're not going to walk away scot-free, clearly. right? They're, they're convicted of this charge, and it's a charge that carries a maximum of five years in jail. Uh, there is the possibility that they could lose custody of their children. There is the possibility that they will do time in jail. The Crown is asking for three and a half to four years Again, you kind of got that sense from the judge that maybe he would just as soon not come down that hard on them. And maybe he was looking for a reason not to, but they're, they're really not giving him a reason not to. They're not taking accountability. They're not showing remorse. Uh, and frankly, it seems that if they had to do it all over again, they would do things exactly the same. And that's, that's frightening and that's concerning. So, I, you know, you do need to send a message. That's part of the, the sentencing, is what's appropriate in this case and what's the message is sending to the community about this crime and how we view it as a society. So we'll find out at 2 o'clock. 974 is a number. We'll come back. Uh, we can talk more about this case. We've had a lot to talk about today, obviously, so we can get to some other issues here as well. This is Kincaid and Breaking Ridge on News Talk 770.
0: Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 9.30 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.